Good morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to introduce our storyteller for the day, Katie Scheid. I'm really excited to uh, hear her use words that aren't set to music. She speaks really well. Um, she's incredibly smart. She's very thoughtful. She's very diligent. Her stock is really high with me. But the question is, does the fact that she's married to Joseph Scheid bring her stock up or down? <laughs> That's a question for you to answer. Katie Shai, come tell us a story. Well, hello. Um, usually I'm hiding behind a song and a guitar, but today I want to share a little piece of my life and heart with all of you. I'm going to tell you a story about my family, and it's a very recent one that's still far from being over. Although God has been faithful throughout my life, I wanted to share this recent story with you because I can see God working more clearly now than I ever have before. I've had a spiritual awakening of sorts these past couple years, and I'm experiencing my faith in a much more authentic and tangible way. I see God's goodness working all around me in so many different and unexpected ways. I call it my Christ lens a new way of seeing the world around me that's much more true and real than what I used to see. So I wanted to share with you how God has been faithful in my life right here and now. Many of you know that my mom had a boating accident at the beginning of July. Both of her hands got tangled in a rope and were pulled into a docking cleat, resulting in the loss of five of her fingers. The shock and trauma of that incident was obviously quite overwhelming, along with the many surgeries and disappointments that followed. However, we are thankful that her health is otherwise fine and she still has five mostly functional fingers left. On a side note, this has been yet another time this church has rallied around me and my family with prayers, meals, concern, and support. How could I not love this church when it so tangibly shows the love of Jesus to me and my family time and time again. The care and the prayer team have been a profound witness to my non-church attending parents. And from myself and them, I wanna say thank you to all of you. But now, returning to my story, I wanna take a step back, about 20 years back, in fact. And as most family stories go, this one has some twists and turns. I have one older brother who I would like to add to my story. He had a very volatile relationship with me and especially my parents growing up. My most vivid and terrible memories as a kid involved my brother being violent, watching him go to juvenile detention and later prison, visiting him at drug rehabs, and watching him self-destruct despite all of our efforts to help him. <clears throat> I prayed for many years that he would change and there could be some sort of reconciliation between him and us, but it seemed like that could never really happen. You know that saying, people never change? Well, I can say that's completely untrue, because today my brother is a changed man. He has slowly but surely turned his life around, and he has chosen to reconcile with me and especially my parents in a miraculous way. So three weeks ago, I was visiting my mom, and she had just had her bandages taken off for the first time. <clears throat> Up until this point, 
Her hands have been covered due to the many surgeries and amputations that she's undergone. So seeing her hands for the first time was shocking and devastating for her. It was the first time she fully realized what she would look like and how much her life would be changed. Her first thought was of frightening her grandchildren. She wondered how she would ever go out in public or even be seen at the grocery store again. During our visit two weeks ago, she kept her hands covered while we were there. But it didn't take long until Owen, my five-year-old son, asked to see them. And of course, he wanted to touch them too. A reminder that kids can teach us a lot if we let them. During that visit, while I was talking with my mom, she shared that my brother had come and visited her the day before. She instantly became emotional and began to cry. She shared through sobs that he had asked her to take the cover off of her right hand so that he could see it, which was the hand that was most damaged in the accident. When she reluctantly complied, he took her hand and he kissed it four times where each finger had been. He told her that he is just happy to have his mom and that is all that really matters to him. My mom said that she had never felt love like that from him before. And I began crying along with her as she told me this story. I would have never thought that my brother, of all people, could teach us so much about God's unconditional love, forgiveness, and acceptance. That redemption and reconciliation are always possible when we choose his grace and light. We all wish this accident had never happened to my mom but God is using all of it. His great goodness is working to repair and make new everything that has been broken. I know and trust that God will continue to use the accidents, mess-ups, and pains in my life to grow my faith and make all things new. In the end, this is the gospel, right? The good news of Jesus Christ working in my life, the life of my family, and in this church. Thank you for letting me share my story. Today's scripture reading is a selection of verses from John 6, 20 through 69 in the New American Standard Bible. Please follow along in your Bibles or on the screens. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. Thank you, Katie. Sorry, Joseph. (laughs) But if you know, he deserves it and so much more. We are in the midst of a series through the book of John called The Son of God, and we're really kind of looking at the person and purpose of God as it's conveyed to us through the life, uh, words, and mission of Jesus. And today, uh, the sermon title is A Severe Mercy. And I'm stealing this title from a book by Sheldon Vanakin called A Severe Mercy. And the topic that we're going to address today is this idea of love as confrontation. We're not saying that all confrontation is love, but love absolutely encompasses confrontation. That if you choose to be a loving person, if you want to be a loving presence to those around you, eventually you're going to have to get more comfortable with this idea of being a confrontational person at times, at the least. It can be contradiction, it can be a challenge, but it can be a kind of mercy that's experienced severely by the other and even by you and maybe what it does to the relationship, hopefully temporarily. So getting back to the book, A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Vanagin. How many of you have read this book? Came out in the, I think it was the 70s, if I'm correct. Uh, but it's, um, it's a pretty famous book. It's won a bunch of awards. But let me summarize the book for you. This man, Sheldon, it's an autobiographical book. Uh, but the uh, book is the story of how he is in love with the concept of love. He finds this woman, he um, says they sort of met on a violent night, uh, Jean Davis, that he calls Davy affectionately, and they decide together to become an impenetrable uh, symbol of what earthly love can look like. This is the setup. Uh, And here are a couple of quotes that explain uh, their mission together. The shining barrier, the shield of our love, a walled garden, a fence around a young tree to keep the deer from nibbling it, a fortified place with the walls and watchtowers gleaming white, the shining barrier we called it, so from the first, protecting the green tree of our love, and yet in another sense, it was our love itself made strong within that was the shining barrier. So here they have this love for each other, and they both love the idea of love, and they apply it towards each other, and they sort of create this barrier, and they're highly jealous and competitive uh, about their love, and they let nothing threaten it, nothing take away from it at all, and they call it the shining barrier, 
Uh, and they say more, they say this, that way we shall create a thousand strands, great and small, that will link us together. Then we shall be so close that it will be impossible, unthinkable for either of us to suppose that we could ever recreate such closeness with anyone else. So they're off to what kind of start, you think? I mean, those of you who have lived life, you know where this is headed, right? And then Davy dies. And then he writes, that death, so full of suffering for us both, suffering that still overwhelmed my life, was yet a severe mercy, a mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. And then he goes on to conclude, God gives us many gifts, but never permanence that we must seek in his arms. I think this is one of the best lines in the whole book, this last line, that God gives us many gifts, but never permanence. I love that. Uh, one of the things that I loved also about this book is that uh, Sheldon starts out as a non-Christian, as does Davy, his wife, uh, but they run into C.S. Lewis and strike up a friendship, the famous C.S. Lewis, and a bulk of the letter uh, includes letters that they wrote back and forth to each other, and there's writings from C.S. Lewis that you've never read and, or could read anywhere else, and so that by itself makes the book uh, worth a, a glance, in my opinion. Uh, but here, here it is the concept of a severe mercy, that if love wants to actually be loving towards us, sometimes it has to do things that are experienced as severe by us. If God is to show up in our life and choose to be loving towards us, he can't, by virtue of who he is, just leave us be. He has to sort of show up in our life. And because he is light and there's darkness in us, because he is sinless and we sin every day, there is a kind of confrontation that's necessitated by who he is and who we are. There's no way it can't not be that way. So we experience his love as confrontational, as challenging, as contradicting, as a kind of disruption to our way of living and thinking and trying to plan and control and move forward. There's simply no other way that it can be. So we can say it this way. Love, by definition, has the job of confrontation, challenge, contradiction, and disruption, which is a kind of severe mercy. Now think about this very benign example. You come over to my house, and I may ask you, would you like something to drink? Is that an act of love? Yeah, that's my way of seeing you, of acknowledging the, the travel, the uh, kind of day you're having, and I want to know how to engage wherever you're at. I want to meet you there, and my way of setting foot into your world is by saying, are you thirsty? But notice, that's a confrontation. I risk rejection. I am being presumptuous. I am intruding into your psychic space. I'm offering to meet a need you may or may not have, and that's a challenge to you. That's a kind of contradiction, because you can say, no, I'm fine. I just, I'm coming from dinner, right? 
but it's disruptive. It's stopped your flow of thinking, and you had to respond to that. So it's a small, mundane example, but that's how love is. Love, by virtue of what it is, has to be confrontational at times. Now, uh, before you go off on a confrontation rampage, love includes confrontation, but confrontation doesn't always equal love because the point isn't confrontation. The point isn't challenge or contradiction or disruption. I know there's a younger version of me back there somewhere that I regress to at times that just says, ah, it's about confrontation. I'm going to confront you and you and you. It's not about that. It's really about love. The first priority, the only priority is love. If you choose to open your eyes and see the world the way God sees it, and if you say, God, what gifts, what opportunities have you given to me? What's a possible way I can contribute to the stream of love, of light into this world? It might very well include confronting someone or something, disrupting someone or something. It might be a mercy that's experienced as severe. So two points today. Jesus loves, and Jesus, therefore, confronts. First, Jesus loves. A few verses to go through here. Start with verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Notice, just by Jesus being himself, he says, it is I. It causes fear. It strikes fear into those who already know him and love him and follow him. These are his disciples, and they're scared of him. Because confrontation is scary. Do you know how scared I get when I see a phone call or email from any one of you? (laughs) My first thought always is, what did I do wrong? How did I mess up today? I always assume the worst. I need an angel to come and say, do not be afraid. They're just saying hello. But that's exactly what's happening. You know what's actually happening here in this passage? He's walking on water. There's a storm, and they're trying to figure stuff out, and there is a strange human-like thing walking on the water. Not like we walk, but it's sort of like a gliding, and it's freaking them out. And that's not Jesus trying to be cool. He's not showing off. He's just being himself. You know, he commands nature. He created the laws of nature. He's not subject to the laws of nature. He is nature. Nature came from him. And so for him, walking on the water is just him being his usual self. That's all that is. It is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now, in uh, the English language too, but we have this in every language where the you or the, uh, uh, the subject is always implied. You know, so if I say, stop it, who am I saying that to? To you. And you learn in English grammar class that the you is implied, but you don't say it. You just say, stop it. And the you that you're talking to understands that it's about them, Right? But what do you do when you want to really emphasize the you part? 
Like, let's say you fell down and you're hurt, and if you say, call 911, nobody may call 911 because everybody thinks the other you is doing it. And so you look at somebody, you make eye contact, and you point to them and say, you, you call 911. And they'll do it because you've emphasized that you would say emphatic you, not just an implied you. And that's exactly the Greek grammar here. In the Greek, you don't say, I am the bread of life. It's the, the phrase is ego eimi. We have seven of these famous I am uh, sentences or statements uh, in the book of John. It's hearkening back to God when he was in the burning bush and he spoke to Moses and Moses said, whom shall I, who, who, who sent me, whom, who, whom shall I say sent me? And God says, ego eimi. I am has sent you. It's the name for God. It's his self-name. It's I am existence. There is no existence outside of me. There is no, I have no beginning. I have no end. I just am. And everything that is came from me because there's no other source material. Right? That's I am. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's emphasizing the I part. Unnecessary to say, but yet he says it. I am the bread of life. And uh, just a side note here, bread back then didn't just mean bread, like you want bread or rice or pot. It's not that. Bread, there's a Korean translation for it. You know, the word is like rice, but we don't mean rice. We mean sustenance. We mean food. So we may say in Korean, did you eat rice today? But we don't mean did you eat rice today. We mean have you had anything that's going to keep your life going? And that's what this phrase is. I am the bread of life. He's saying, I am sustenance itself. And then again, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am, again, ego me, the bread of life. Jesus shows up as himself. He comes on the human scene and he brings to bear on the human scene the full weight of who he is and what he's about. Now, what happens if the perfect, the love, the holy shows up and just says, here I am? I mean, this is really easy to understand. How many of you have ever been in a room where somebody you looked up to or somebody that you're starstruck by walks in the room? Does your level of self-consciousness go up or down? I was in the uh, gym yesterday, and I was working out, and I don't know, my ego at the gym has gone up a little. And then this guy walked in. You guys, he looked amazing. He had lines, like somebody took a Sharpie and drew lines where his like muscle striations are. And to top it off, he was so humble. Like he didn't strut. He's just like strolling into the gym. And immediately you see all the guys in the gym look, and we all just got a little self-conscious. <laughs> it wasn't even worth puffing our chest. It just, we just kind of became small. He didn't do anything. He just showed up. Now, times that by a billion. That's what's happening here. Jesus shows up. He feeds 
5,000 men plus, probably way more than that, children and women, from one single meal prepare for one single boy. He does this. And then, and then he walks on water. And then, you know what happens? He teleports himself and the whole boat and all the disciples in the boat immediately to shore. You don't believe me? Read the text. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water. And then he teleports. And then the people that he had just been speaking to, they're like doing the math. And they go, um, there was no other boat. How did you get here? They're confused because nobody could have gone there. And so they're trying to figure him out. Who is this guy? How, what? Now they begin to get a sense of what and who and all that they're sort of being confronted by. And into this sort of like spell that's been cast over these people with these succession of miracles and power acts, he starts talking nonsense. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now listen, this is his description of humanity. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. What is Jesus saying? He's an indictment of the entire human race. You know, you watch a movie, you think it's really good, but if you deconstruct it, it's either about sex, money, or power, driven by selfishness and greed. That's all the movies you've ever liked. Every story is so predictable because human beings are shallow and predictable. We don't have like interesting things that pull us forward. You know, you meet some villain and he seems like a real tough guy, he seems smart. And then what does it turn out to be? He just wants a million dollars. That's it? That's what this whole thing was about? Yeah, it's just about money. That's all or it's about sex, or it's about power. And then what? I don't know. We don't have an imagination beyond that. As far as we're concerned, all we work for is just this food which perishes. It's like, so what if we have sex, money, or power? It just, it's perishable. You know, we're so predictable. And this is what Jesus is saying. You guys, all you ever do is worry about the loaves and the fish. And you marvel, not because of what I'm actually saying. You're missing the point. You're following me around because you ate of the food and you got filled. Your stomachs are happy and you want more. And you don't believe me? You know, all we have to do to grow this church is to bring, like, supply free food. People are so simple. Offer free lunch and they come. You know, we've been talking about the sort of opt-in, opt-out culture. You know, people don't like to go to places. People don't show up. People aren't commitment-oriented. They're picking and choosing. And you know what all the answers to that, prob that complex social cultural problem is? Free food. <laughs> That's all it takes. Do you want to know how I can get all of you to stick around longer in the lobby? 
I alone can do it. I have so much power. All I have to do is to put a few donuts out there. Do you know how many complaints we got because we took away the bagels and cream cheese we used to have here in the mornings? That's us. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. This is the reality of the human condition that Jesus drops in on. What's going to happen? If Jesus is love, and if, if really he is the, the source of everything, if he is God, if he is I am, he has to confront this shallowness, doesn't he? He have to. You can't just leave it alone. And so Jesus says in verse 53 and following, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now, before you say that is so wacky, which it is, but think about what they were doing. They were all focused on eating the five loaves and fish. They were like, we're going to follow this guy as long as he gives us food to eat. And Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So it's not a total non sequitur. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And then, predictably, verse 60, their response is, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? I take some personal solace in this. If you all don't understand my sermons, I just think, they're just shallow and simple creatures, and they didn't understand my... I know that's... I just like to say that to myself. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does, does this cause you to stumble? As a result, verse 66, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Again, very predictable. Jesus says, I'm not going to keep feeding you normal bread and fish. I'm not going to fill your bellies in that shallow way. That's not why I came. And Immediately they leave. It doesn't take much for human beings to abandon ship. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's not even a flattering response by Peter, is it? It's we would go too, because you're obviously a nut job. But where else will we go? You're the closest thing to words of eternal life that we have ever heard. And so we're going to stay. You're the least uh, evil of the evil things that we hear out there. This is so wacky, eating your flesh and drinking your blood. Why do you have to put it that way? Listen, if he is the bread of life, you have to eat it. If you don't break the bread, you remain broken. But if you break the bread, then you become whole. That's what Jesus is saying. I have to die. I have to be broken. And you have to believe 
that I had to be broken. This is food for you. This expression of love and grace, the cleansing of your sin that you can't do for yourself. Unless I do this, you will perish. It doesn't matter what you eat. And this is what he's saying. You know, um, I don't know where you're at in your Christian journey, but this is the, um, the thing that's going to get you through life. You know, you're going to make it, and you're going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to say, good job, good, uh, well done, good and faithful servant, if and only if you come to understand that God is going to be confrontational with you. If God is love and if he is light, he has to address the darkness. That means your plans are going to be foiled. It means your hopes are going to be dashed. It means that your expectations are incorrect. It means that you're going to be contradicted and challenged on a regular basis. You're going to be surprised. You're going to have feelings that are negative. You're going to be angry and confused. You're going to be disrupted. The mercy of God in your life is going to feel severe. And some of it's going to be traumatic. Some of it's going to be prolonged over years and years and years. The people that God brings into your life are not going to be agreeable to you. You're not going to understand where they're coming from. They're going to make little to no sense to you. And yet God's going to call you to be together with them. There's going to be health things that happen. There's going to be financial and career and children and family disruptions that are going to shake you to the core. You know, there's a, a little verse that Christians, in my opinion, find false solace in, where it says, God will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. I think that's just part one of it. I think there's a contradiction to that little idea also. Paul says that we were tempted beyond what we can bear to the point of death. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's not that life is going to know exactly your limits and God's going to stay within your limits. That's not what that idea is. Life is going to throw challenges at you that are going to overwhelm you. And yet, God will be there at your point of death, and he will raise you up from the dead. That's the promise of Scripture, that you are going to die, that parts of you are going to die so that he can raise you up again. He's going to break you so that he can make you again. That's the promise of Scripture. Katie talked about her brother changing. How does that happen without death? Things had to die for the newer version of him to live. And we may not credit God, but it is God because he is the only author there is. You think about culture or the systems we've set in place or the leaders, human leaders. Nobody cares about you, knows how to care about you the way God only can. That's why there's no permanence except with God. This is the promise of Scripture you know, uh, one of the primary examples of this in my life so far has been marriage. And if you were here last week, we, you know that we celebrated 20 years. Um, and many of you told me I was just a, a third of the way through, that there's 40 more coming, uh, hopefully. 
But I, I hope so because it takes so long to learn in marriage. So I was thinking about some of the bigger lessons in life. Here's what I learned. That marriage, by definition, is saying yes to somebody contradicting you every day on things that are absolutely correct to your mind's eye. So whenever we pack, the whole house is sort of just crazy because we got four kids and wife and me. We're packing something. We're packing for the dog. So there's a lot of just sort of activity and things that are sort of an upheaval. And here's the thing that drives me crazy. When she packs, she likes to leave all of her many little bags. That's another thing. She likes to have lots of little bags. Why not one big bag? That's all I'm saying. But many little bags, and she likes to leave it all open and sort of spilling out till the last second right before we get into the car. And so part of our packing routine, every time I have to say, Susie, this bag, and I'm shouting because I don't know where she is, Susie, this bag that looks like this, that's over here by your bed, should I close it up and pack it? And then I wait for an answer. But I'm never really sure. Even when she says, yes, you can zip it up, I still don't know. Like, does she know that it's ready? Like, does she, I'm never sure. I feel like the person to whom the bag belongs should do the zipping up. Would it kill her to zip up the bag? (laughs) Why? Like, what is the meaning of this? So, it took me about 10 years, 10 years of marriage to learn that she is not like me. (laughs) It's a really hard lesson. You know, 90% of the time you're upset, it's because somebody's not like you. Like they think differently for some reason, they have different values, different reactions, different reaction times, other things going on in their brain. You know, it's ridiculous. But this lesson took me 10 years, and I'm still learning it, but it's true. She's not me. Is she allowed to be different than me? Yeah, a lot of you are nodding, and you're thinking, yeah, you should be more like her. (laughs) I know, I know. So I'm learning that. Second thing, there is this dog that's been barking since the month of May (laughs) in a neighbor's house. And so many nights, we've been awakened in the middle of the night, or sometimes we've stayed up all night because we can't sleep because of this dang dog. And uh, I, I sleep a little bit better than Susie, so she's the one that's really sort of feeling the brunt of this. It took her, since May, just last week, she walked over to the neighbor's house for the first time, and she's so nice about it. She just met this person, went inside, and came back just talking about how sweet this person is. Did you get the job done? Is the do- Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure what's going to happen with the dog. What? You went over there to shut the dog up and you come back talking about how nice the owner is and you're not sure? 10 years for me, another 10 years to learn that acceptance actually is more powerful than aggression. You have to think about that one to see if it's true in your life. I know that she's been more powerful than me in terms of changing other people by accepting people. 
my aggressive style has kind of created more resistance from other people. So marriage has been a long, two decades long lesson in contradiction. You have your own stories. Jesus confronts Steve Brown in a book called Hidden Agenda. He says this, if you don't think you're a sinner, you'll never dance before the throne of the Redeemer. If you don't see how needy you are, you'll never know the absolute and pure joy of being free with others who admit it and are free also. How will you know that you are a sinner? How will you know that your ways are not his ways, that your thoughts are not his thoughts? How will you learn that there is such a thing as wisdom from on high? And it's not the same as a little math that you've been doing in your little head until he confronts you, until he contradicts you and throws curveballs into your life. Uh, Let's end with this application. I have two. Uh, The first is uh, this idea of a safe and holy space. Now, you know, I get a lot of requests from people from the staff, from lay people, from people in my denomination, whatever, to address some of the more challenging conditions that are happening in our society, in our country these days. And uh, it really kind of got heightened around the election time. And then now, with lots of things happening in between, there's always sort of pressure on me to talk about uh, societal and cultural and Uh, political things from the pulpit. There's really a lot of pressure. I feel it. You know, and then uh, there are my fellow covenant pastors on Facebook uh, just saying stuff and, you know, and there's opinions that I hold and there's reactions that I have. And I always come back to this, Peter, what's your role? What's your job? What's the call of this church And how do I play my role that's faithful to the call on this church? And so I ask, what is the church for? And here's what I want to say. The church will always be a safe and holy space. We're going to create this space, and we're going to hold it. And the space is going to be large enough for conversation. The space is going to be well-lit enough so that light can shine into darkened areas of our minds and our hearts. The space will be sustained enough, held long enough, so that we can walk through some seasons together. And the space is going to be loving enough that we're going to figure out how to be friends through the journey. And that's the call of this church. If you ever feel anxiety or reactivity rising up in you or a value that you feel, or even if you say, Peter, this is the gospel, how can you not say this? And I've had people from many different sides of every spectrum come to me and say, this is a, go- this is a gospel issue. And I will say, except for the death of Christ, we're really not going to get into it officially from the pulpit because I don't want to shrink the space. And some of you may not like that. I don't know what to tell you about that. But that's my job. That's the call I feel on me to hold and create space. Why? 
because we need disruption. We need different points of view. We need to be engaged in the culture, in, in, in the views, in the feelings, in the walks of life. We need the multiple generations. We need the different cultures and races and socioeconomic uh, status people. We need as much diversity as we can. This is one of the beautiful things about Jesus. When he showed up, he was able to command this broad spectrum of people, from Jews to Gentiles, from believers to unbelievers, men, women, young, old, people who came to him uh, from a place of legitimacy and people who were completely illegitimate, people who were diseased and outcasts and people who were the most looked up to in society. They all flocked to him. He was somehow able to create and hold space in a magnetic way. I love and respect that about the ministry of Jesus. And that's what we are called to do so that within the confines of a safe and holy space, we can have conversation. And we can have confrontation so that we can figure out how to love better, how to be better. Ruby Sales, she had this great quote. She said, we need hindsight we need insight, and we need foresight. Where do you get that? How do you get that? She said, you get it only from diversity. Whatever, however way you want to stretch out that word, we only get hindsight, insight, and foresight from diversity. And she goes on to say, it's not about eyesight. It's about we-sight. What do we all see together? I really like to believe my view is actually the view everybody should hold. But too often in life I've learned it's insufficient, it's incomplete, it's inaccurate. And there's nothing more dangerous than partial truth. Um, as a practical application of creating the safe and holy space, our church, we've been working, uh, led by Joseph Scheid and Tim Krell, on a group called the Colossian Way small group that we're forming. And it's a training that they've gone to. And they've been trained in how to create and hold space for people with differing views to come together and have conversation and yet maintain the relationship. Because if we really believe love covers a multitude of sins, we have to lead with love and end with love and fill it with love in the meanwhile. And the Colossian Way is a way to do that. Second application is what I would call safe and holy engagement. We have three options, folks. We have what's called pluralism or syncretism. Pluralism is when you're just okay with everything. Everybody is, can have their own truth, and we can have all their own religions, and it doesn't matter. Everybody's views are equally valid. That's pluralism. There's a cousin to that. Syncretism means that you actually have one God, and that God in the historical sense was Rome, you know, and syncretism means everything gets absorbed and amalgamated, melted into this one shape that supports Rome. And that's uh, a lot of America is that way. We're sort of consumeristic, individualistic, and as long as we continue to serve the God of individualism or consumerism. You can use religion, you can use technology, you can use relationships and sex and power and money, your friends, whatever. Use everything as long as you maintain your seat on the throne. 
That's what a lot of America is. So America is completely immersed in pluralism and syncretism. We see this. We experience this. The option number two is isolation, where you sort of uh, excommunicate yourself from the culture at large and say, we are going to stay sheltered and protected. We are basically undifferentiated and insecure, easily threatened, so we have to stay separate. We don't really engage anything. We are just us. That's sort of the Noah's Ark view of uh, religion. And then there's a third way, and that's what the early church adopted. This is how the early church was. They were winsome yet faithful, invisible yet influential, engaged yet differentiated, competent and integrous. They somehow figured out a way to penetrate the culture at large and work for the flourishing of the culture and yet maintain their Christian identity as followers of Christ. And that's why Rome was so threatened and that's why the persecution against the church started. Because they weren't like the Jews who were isolated. They weren't like the Romans who were syncretistic. But they were completely different. Invisible and yet influential. And in fact, that wasn't the New Testament. Uh, it wasn't the New Testament's first thought. It was from Jeremiah. This is what God told the Israelites to do. Jeremiah 29 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says this, Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This was God's command to the Israelites. Don't isolate yourselves from Babylon, but integrate into their culture and seek the welfare of Babylon. Work for the flourishing of Babylon. Do business there. Let marriage happen and propagate within Babylon. Don't feel like you have to sort of hold your you know, luggage all packed, but open them up and live life. Be legitimate and value-add members of the society of Babylon. And the New Testament church did the exact same thing for Rome. This is the third way. Safe and holy engagement. What is the church? The church is a safe and holy space. And then from here, as an outpost, you go out and you engage in safe and holy ways. You have to be competent bringers of light in ways that are winsome to the culture, and yet you remain faithful to Christ. That's your job. So that you can be confronted, so that you can be confrontational because you've earned the right to do so. If love often looks like disruption, then love is about trust. You know, when life is disruptive, then you have to trust that there is a God. If it's about trust, then it's about lordship. You believe that God really is the Lord 
that life isn't just spinning out of control. It's not really just about survival of the fittest. You don't have to fend for yourself, fight for yourself. But you can trust that in all things, God is working for the good. God never authors evil. You know, God doesn't cause tragedies to happen, but we believe he's more powerful than those tragedies. And the promise of Scripture is that he will be faithful and he will use all things for the good. And when we see that work of God in our lives, in our midst, then we say, his name is wonderful. His name is powerful. And when you see how your life is unfolding, you say, his name is beautiful. You declare him Lord. You declare your trust in his name. His is the only name worthy of that. Do you believe? Will you trust? We have believed, Peter said, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, as I stand here, I'm kind of uh, afraid to say amen to this truth that you will be confrontational and disruptive with me. I don't know what's going to come my way. And I want to have some argument against it when it does come. But rather than that, God, I want to trust you. I want to get large instead of small. And I want to lean on you and believe in you and say you are God. And I want to experience your redemptive work in my life and in the world. And I want to declare your name as wonderful, as powerful, as beautiful. Help all of us to do that in Jesus' name.